Welcome to episode 34 of season 2 of the Search with Candor podcast. My name is Jack Chambers-Ward, and I am your host for this week, joined by Mr. Mark Williams-Cook. Hello, Mark. Hello. How are you? I am very well, giving you some whoops. Pleased to be back. I appreciate the whoops. We'll get into some SEO and PPC news. Some of it's whoop-worthy, some of it's more exciting, some of it's less exciting. But in this week's episode, we will be talking about Google testing new read time labels on SERPs, Google Business Profile Guidelines have been updated to include products. Some new better ad standards will be introduced in October 2022. And we'll be diving into some Systrix data around the top 100 most visible domains in UK search. Search for Canada is supported by Systrix, the SEO's toolbox. Go to systrix.com SWC if you want to check out some of their fantastic free tools such as their SERP snippet generator, href lang validator, checking out your site's visibility index, and their Google update tracker. You can also go to systrix.com slash trends to keep up with Trendwatch, and systrix.com slash blog for all of the latest updates and data analysis, as I said, some of which we'll be talking about later on in the show. So we love a good new SERP feature here on Search with Canda. I know all the SEOs around the world do as well. And there has been some tests going on. It looks like some read time tests and actually applying labels to results on the SERPs themselves. We've seen examples of a quick read label and a five minutes or less label as well. And there have been a couple of different people who have verified this with screenshots of their SERPs, including Lily Ray herself, who often talks about this kind of stuff on Twitter. So Pretty interesting stuff there, especially with what we've been talking about recently with the helpful content updates, which we'll be talking about later on, that's for sure. But yeah, I think it's an interesting one because there's always debate in the early moments of everyone's SEO career. Everyone goes to the, oh, it's got to be a minimum 300 word article, blah, 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 blah. But we know word count and the length of an article is not a ranking factor. However, there are studies to confirm that longer articles do often tend to rank better. And we've talked about this on the show before many times. It's because those articles tend to be more well-written, more well-researched, and actually answer more questions in a broader, more specific term as well. So yeah, it's an interesting one. I think it's a tricky one to kind of quantify how this would affect me viewing it on a SERP as like a, as like a user. Do you have any opinions on this, Mark? Do you think it's a positive or a negative thing or something you kind of expected? Yeah. Well, firstly, I think it's interesting that um, there is quick read and less than five minute read. I mean, it is less than five minute read no longer a quick read? <laughs> yeah. I guess what's the cutoff point? Like, is a quick read like 90 seconds and then yeah. less than five is anything between 90 seconds and five minutes? Yeah. So, so, yeah. I, I'm not a fan of this um, for many reasons. So firstly, I, I don't think, and I, I actually think I saw this and I did try and find it before the show and failed miserably. I'm pretty sure I saw someone testing read times, um, listing read times in the SERP to see if it affected click-through rates. And they found basically it had no impact whatsoever. So Google doing it themselves, I'm skeptical as to whether that will have any impact on if users decide 
to click or not, you know, whether it's his quick read or less than five minutes. Um, we've already got things like featured snippets, we've got PAAs, we've got dynamic meta descriptions, which I think give users a really good hint as to is the answer right there. And I don't even think necessarily the length of the content affects um, how people's like information retrieval goes in that if I do a search, you know, and Google said it, the answer's on this page, I click on that page, even if it's 2000 words, if I'm after something specific, I'm still just going to scan the page, might control F it, you know, might look, <laughs> might look for a header tag. You know, I'm not reading these things like newspapers or books. That's not how people can consume websites. Yeah. So I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical on how useful it is. I mean, yeah, you know, Google has got the ability to test it and you should always um, test things. My concern is, though, that it will just become another metric for people to try and optimize for because I've always been a big fan of, you know, the content should be as long as it needs to be. Agreed. So yeah. trying to say, oh, we need this to be quick read or whatever. Um, you know, there, there's really good best practices for how you should lay out content, how it should be structured about, yes, you should, you know, there's ways to optimize for featured snippets by including the short canned answer of this is the kind of specific question within the intent. And then here's the long answer. So you can, you can hit both those things. Um, so I'm, I'm worried it's something people will focus on. I, I, I think it's going to be a, a test that we, that they probably won't continue is my gut feel on that. Yeah, I'd be interested to see if they do a longer one because I I agree with you. I don't think it would influence me particularly whether it was quick read or less than five minute read. But if I saw ten minutes plus or something like that, I'd be like, oh god, okay, fine. That might actually be an off putting thing, and I'd be interested to see if they kind of pivot it from that other angle of this is a long piece rather than this is a quick read. I don't know. Again, I would think that would have more of a negative effect on users, at least from me being a user myself but yeah I'm, I'm like you i tend to skim stuff and this has been a thing on twitter and linkedin and stuff already linkedin whenever you embed an article in a post you get a little summary from the metadata there as one well it pulls it through um i know our blog posts do when we post the podcast and stuff on linkedin you get that kind of preview with the read time on there and stuff like that i believe the read time for the 500 plus unsolicited seo tips is in like the dozens of hours or something at this point. <laughs> so I remember when I did the update for that, it was pretty hefty. So yeah, it's already a thing in a few places, but I'm interested to see, yeah, if it would have a, once if it is and once it is implemented by Google, would it have a significant impact on people clicking through? So I mentioned some data from Systrix. We now have the updated top 100 domains, the most visible websites in UK search, updated for August 2022. The previous update was the end of last year in December 2021. And the good people over at Systrix, including the one and only Steve Payne, who we had on the show before, have gone through the data and laid it all out for us, including some winners, some losers, and all the other bits and pieces really kind of laying out a percentage change, position change from how things have shifted in that top 100. I think there's some pretty interesting ones, some pretty surprising shifts. Some things I've literally never heard of being quite high ranking <laughs> and uh, other things really dropping off that don't necessarily surprise me. But I think it's an interesting shift to kind of have a look and, and dive around and get kind of a big picture of search in the UK as of this month. 
So, Jack, who has made the biggest increase in the top few websites? Uh, Google's one of them. <laughs> Funnily enough, Google are up 53 places. Uh, up now up to 21st. And uh, I, I think, what's the first move on that list near the top, if I remember rightly? YouTube.com. And who owns YouTube? Oh, <laughs> what a coincidence. Yeah, YouTube are number three, moving up five places from eight where they were towards the end of last year. Uh, quick run down the top 10, and then we'll kind of dive around and have a look. It'll be a mostly names you recognize, to be honest, folks, if you're even vaguely aware of the biggest websites in the UK. Wikipedia, of course maintaining its position at number one, and number two, also maintaining their position, is Amazon.co.uk. And Wikipedia is a significant margin there, just to give you, yes. you know, some idea. This is over twice the visibility of every, you know, the entire Amazon.co.uk domain. Exactly, yeah. Using Systrix's visibility index, we actually get a metric for understanding just how visible they are. And like I said, we get a change in that visibility as well. We also get a percentage change and a position change as well, so you get a few different points of data. Like you said, wikipedia.org reigning with 6,482.2 visibility index. To put that into perspective, by the time you get to number seven, which is cambridge.org, you're below 1,000. So there's only six domains in the UK with more than 1,000, and one of them is Wikipedia with nearly 6,500. They are really kind of dominating the visibility in many ways. Next up, as we mentioned, we have YouTube. That's 1,807.6. Number four is eBay.co.uk, 1,341.7. IMDB.com, which I thought was interesting, owned by Amazon, by the way. 1,120.1 for IMDB. Facebook.com, this is the last one with more than 1,000, with 1,029. And then we've got Cambridge.com, Merriam-Webster.com, Britannica.com, and Etsy.com. Followed up by a few other well-known. We've got the NHS, we've got Argos, dictionaries and stuff, Instagram, even our pals over at fandom.com, which is all the, the fan wikis and things like that. Anything surprising you might have anything catching your eye, having a glance over this table? Yeah. Um, so I, I did, you know, conspiracy theories aside, the YouTube increase, you know, the visibility increase, there is 154%. From the last time, which is you know massive, it's over doubling it, which um, I'm not sure is is linear to how much kind of content they're they're adding, etc. You know, if we look at the change in Wikipedia was 13% increase, Amazon was 27%, eBay was 41%, IMDb was just under 20%, and YouTube was over 150%. It's by far and away the biggest increase. So. Again, not surprising, but always makes me a little bit like, hmm, obviously Google do own that. Um, one thing I did like was, so Etsy is in the top 10 at 10th with a whopping 68.9% increase. And it did ring a, ring a memory bell for yep. me, flagged in my memory, and I checked back and actually we had talked about some of the top domain visibility back in February. and Etsy had actually had another plus 29% in February. So Etsy is actually seems to be going from strength to strength. We've talked about their directories and their landing pages before as well, haven't we? Because I remember you talked about how, well, both of us had that kind of anecdotal evidence of whatever you search for, there seems to be a landing page for it. And it's such a, an obvious thing to do in e-commerce when you have a thing that is being searched for and you know your customers are searching for that thing building pages specifically that function as landing pages that then 
build out that hub and create internal links to all the different products and stuff like that is such a classic way of implementing that from an e-commerce side of things. And you can really see the evidence of that. And I'm sure plenty of other stuff they've been doing from an SEO perspective as well. But yeah, Etsy is one that definitely rang my bell. I'm like, oh yeah, we did talk about Etsy beforehand because you kind of, we've been covering it long enough now since the start of this year, pretty much where we're getting around to, oh yeah, we talked about that six months ago. Let's compare when we talked about it on the previous episode of the podcast and things like that. The other, the other one that surprised me on here with a 306% increase at number 21 was google.co.uk. Because yeah. I was a bit like, hang on a minute, what, why are they appearing you know, in, in, in search results? Um, Systrix had actually done a little bit of a breakdown of this and it's primarily the books.google subdomain um, where they're essentially indexing other people's content and ranking it. And books.google.co.uk as a subdomain would, on its own, would make the top 40 most visible <laughs> sites, which is, a, again, like mind-blowing amount of um, traffic. Um, so I found that quite interesting. Um, a couple of other things I noticed. Um, initially, I saw, so the Guardian and BBC News websites both had 22% and 20% respectively drops in visibility. Although looking at the kind of bigger picture, the Guardian, despite that 22% drop, is still by far the most visible UK news domain. So to give you some context, it's according to the Systrix numbers, three times more visible than the Daily Mail and four times more than BBC.com. So yeah, huge, huge site. There's actually a breakdown of the top 20 most visible news domains on that same post as well, as of course, links in the show notes as always, search.wakanda.co.uk, you know the score by now, listeners. But yeah, The Guardian is far and away, in a similar way to Wikipedia in terms of the overall visibility, theguardian.com is really kind of taken the cake for a lot of, a lot of the news in the UK, with independent.co.uk still 100 behind it, which is a pretty significant drop from number one to number two. Picking up from your episode on TikTok as mm, well. Yes. Um, TikTok has smashed its way in at number 92. Nice. And to give you again some kind of scale, you know, you might think, oh, 92, that's not that impressive. But this is the most visible domains on the web. So this is, we're talking here in, in excess. Out of billions. Yeah, of 100, <laughs> we're, we're talking in excess of 150 million organic clicks monthly wow. for TikTok. And this is over their 30 odd million programmatically kind of created pages. And again, to give you, to give you some context in terms of other social media platforms, that's about one quarter of the visibility of Twitter, about one fifth the visibility of Instagram, which is on the down and about one-tenth the visibility of Facebook, although as you can imagine, its kind of growth rate is still astronomical. It's well above those things, whereas some of the other social media sites are slowly kind of dropping in terms of their visibility. So expect, I would expect that to become um, more prominent. And I saw as well published today, um, our friend Lydia had um, written an article about some SEO, TikTok SEO, and in there, again, I saw some interesting searches where people are essentially doing brand searches for TikTok for certain things like recipes. So this, again, is going to impact the visibility of the domain when people are literally choosing. They're using Google, but they are choosing to say, I want the result from TikTok for like this recipe. Yeah, yeah, I find that really interesting. And that is 
like you said, continuing that shift that Annie May, that conversation we had on that previous episode, as much as you grit your teeth and try to avoid it, Mark, TikTok is making an impact in search results. And very much as Lydia says in her article, again, linked in the show notes, very much like it's not here to replace Google. That's not the point, but it's making an impact. And it's something if it is appropriate for you and your website, your clients, your brand, whatever it might be, it's something to consider from a search perspective because it is making big waves. And as you said, Mark, it's growing astronomically, exponentially at this point when it comes to uh, impact in search. The last thing I mentioned is on the link on this, um, the look at these domains on the Systrix site, they have a neat little video, which is uh, an animated visual history of the ranking domains over the last 11 years. And one thing I did notice from that, although I kind of made some remarks about YouTube, you know, having its big increase, it's way less visible comparatively to how it used to be. So if you kind of hit play on that, and I recommend you watch it, it's really interesting. You'll see YouTube was actually number one for many, many, many years. And it wasn't until 2019 Amazon started battling it um, for, for a number one position. But there's been some quite significant changes. As you say, you know, some of the kind of old guard like IMDb have stuck around in the top 10 for a long mm -hmm. time. But it's interesting seeing how much those number one positions do change and how quickly over the years. Um, but it, again, to be fair to Google, it looks like they're actually showing their own property less there than they used to. Yeah, definitely. And last little update from Systrix, we have an update from Johannes Boyce talking about the helpful content update, something we've talked about recently on the show in a few different directions. And the summary kind of is nothing significant yet. That was the exact quote from Steve when I last spoke to him. And that's kind of the summary of the article here from Johannes talking about the kind of post rollout kind of vi effect on visibility. We've seen a few sites updated and, and affected by it, but in the grand scheme of things and the overall landscape from Systrix's analyzing of the data, we're not seeing a huge, huge impact. And anecdotally from people I've spoken to and things I've seen on Twitter and LinkedIn and stuff, that seems to be the case from what other people are saying as well. Would you agree, Mark, from what you've seen? Yeah, absolutely. I find it quite hilarious because everyone was really pumped for this update. And it's Panda 2.0. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh. it, it was, um, yeah, it was, everyone was talking about it as if it was going to be like a major impact and nobody has really seen that much. Um, I've still got our Canary in the Mine um, scraped uh, your, your little spam content site. site and that's growing still slowly so obviously we're only week, uh, one week into the rollout of the helpful content update but that's very unhelpful unoriginal content um it's up to about four thousand clicks a month now from search with pretty much zero effort ridiculous so i'm, I'm hoping i'm hoping it gets a penalty because it will give me some kind of hope that they've really nailed it um <laughs> But it's, it's useful You're waiting to, for your canary to die in your yeah. essentially. I mean, it's useful to have these things because it, it, it will give, you, give us a better understanding, right, of we've seen a few times like how purely generated AI content, while it reads really well to humans, is actually quite easy for machines, if it's unedited, to predict that it is machine written because of the statistical um, relevance of each word that follows the previous words or set of words. So there's free... Um, detection output tools online for GPT-2 that work very well for GPT-3. 
if you generate something, paste it in, it will give you like a 99% plus certainty it's AI driven. If you edit it manually, you can literally put one word in and it, it wrecks Throws it. off the whole thing. Um, but obviously that's a very simple model, but very interesting. But the reason why I like this test then is because we get an idea of how Google's judging that helpful content because technically the duplicate content issue aside, the scraped content could be quite helpful because it's probably human written and it reads well. So it will, it will be interesting to see what's happening to sites we know that have lots of AI generated content. So maybe Google's targeting more of them because again, we've spoken about that before. There's lots of them popping up. Um, so it's just seeing which side of the kind of fence the algorithm lands on. One thing I did learn about the helpful content update that um, I hadn't really thought about before was from a tweet from the Google search liaison, Danny Sullivan, that just talks about a classifier that Google is using to determine if content is quote unquote helpful or not. Um, and it's in response to a thread where people are talking about if the data is kind of pre-collected, the algorithm kind of runs and then it's pre-baked and it's done and you see the changes. But the reply from Danny is suggesting that it's a constantly running process and that, so this is now to quote his tweet, the classifier didn't start at launch. It already understood site content over a period of time. At launch, we just began to use the signal in ranking. It does continually work and monitor sites to understand if there's lasting change. That makes sense, right? Yeah. yeah. And yeah. He's, he's quoting something here he's linked to, um, which is a natural question some will have is how long it will take for a site to do better if it removes unhelpful content. Sites identified by this update may find the signal applied to them over a period of months. Our classifier for this update runs continuously, allowing it to monitor newly launched sites and existing ones. As it determines that the unhelpful content has not returned in the long term, the classification will no longer apply. So it seems like they've been running this classifier in the background, maybe testing it, tweaking it, improving it, but haven't integrated it into the kind of ranking algorithm that's now happened but it will be kind of a rolling process and again interesting when communicating with clients or when you're doing your own seo that you know if you chop a load of your unhelpful content off it's not going to be an overnight thing that it changes it needs to know it's not coming back in the long term something seo doesn't happen overnight surely <laughs> not i know right <laughs> but yeah kind of funny that nothing majors happened i certainly haven't seen anything to write home about we'll, we'll keep an eye on it in the long term i'm sure plenty of you listeners are as well but yeah we will keep you up to date if there are any updates from Systrix or google themselves about how it's just affecting site visibility overall we will keep you up to date here on the show so there's an update to products and how they're included in some Google business profile data, which I think is very interesting. We've been talking about local SEO a bit here recently in the studio, uh, doing some sort of like Google business profile updates and things like that, and thinking about how we can best implement that with all the changes that have been happening recently. And obviously I had a chat with Claire Carlisle, one of the local SEO experts at Bright Local a little while ago as well. So I'll put a link for that in the show notes at search.withcanda.co.uk. Plenty of great Google business profile tips from Claire on that episode. But this is specifically talking about a product carousel you can find on the mobile version of Maps. So if you're on Google Maps and you're looking at a business, you can see a product tab 
if they have implemented their products correctly. You can basically click on featured products as a user. You can find product categories. You can view those products within those categories and view like descriptions and details and things like that. It's basically a more clear kind of integration with the products into the map side of things when you're looking at a business profile. And if you want to do that from you controlling that and being the owner of that business profile, you can do so through the product editor. And you can also use the pointy app with the point of sale system there as well and edit your basically product carousel and preview how they're going to look and appear in Google search for your customers there as well. There are some updated guidelines and policies to go with that as well. They also don't allow things like alcohol, tobacco, gambling, financial services, pharmaceuticals, unapproved supplements, health and medical devices, all the kind of stuff you would expect from being more tightly controlled and policied is included in this as well. So beware of that if your site does cover any of those types of products as well. As I said, links for all of this will be in the show notes at search.withcanda.co.uk. We got an email notification from Google Ads about a better ads standards via the Coalition for Better Ads, which I hadn't heard of before. Same. I mean, I'm an SEO, not a PPC <laughs> guy. But thankfully, Luke here at Canda, who is very much switched into everything PPC, notified Mark and I about it. And uh, yeah, sounded like a thing. I, I was very skeptical at first. Like Any like coalition of anything, I'm like, all right, okay, this doesn't sound legit. Not realizing, oh, this is a legit thing from Google. This is an official notification. But here we are. Yeah, it's very interesting. Some of the listeners might have no idea what we're talking about. So why don't you give us a quick rundown, Mark? So this is the email I got for context first, or Luke got, sorry. It says, Dear Advertiser, in October 2022, so not exactly a lot of notice. No. Uh, the destination requirements policy will be updated to include a new policy requiring ad experiences on destinations to conform to the Coalition for Better Ads, Better Ads Standards, and it links to those. Destinations containing ad experiences that don't conform to the Better Ads Standards will be informed via the Ad Experience Report, and any ads that lead to such destinations will be disapproved. For more information about the types of disallowed ad experiences, please visit the Coalition for Better Ads website. For more information on the Ad Experience Report, please visit the Web Tools Help Center or Ad Experience Report Forum. So this, as it says, links off to betterads.org slash standards, which essentially gives us a lot of information about the different types of desktop, mobile um, experiences and types of ads that are essentially allowed or are recommended by those ad standards. And I had a little dig around the site. There's actually some super interesting um, research on there. So one thing that particularly interested me was essentially some preference data they had collected on different ad types. And this is sort of a, a few dozen, it looks like sort of maybe 30, 40 different types of ads and essentially collecting user data on, on how they rate the experience with those ads. So the if, if you can have a top rated ad, so I guess <laughs> the, the least intrusive on the experience are things like uh, sticky 320 by 50 ad on the top is the kind of highest rated one, closely followed by sticky ad on the bottom or small static inline ad. So essentially these are small adverts that just sit on the page 
they're there and you can click on them. And at the reverse end of that, the most hated is pop-up ad with countdown. Um, yeah, agreed. And a, common, a commonality you'll see um, in these types of ads is essentially the more disruptive the ad is to the user experience, the lower rated it is. So there's loads of um, ad types with interval and countdown in, in the kind of most hated ads. Refreshing ads with five second intervals. Like, oh <laughs> God, that sounds infuriating. So I think this is, this is quite interesting um, for a, a few um, different reasons. So it's very hard to do now because of things like the reserve price on Google ads. But there is still some um, arbitrage going on on various websites. Arbitrage is essentially when you buy traffic from some ads somewhere and then essentially you resell that traffic through other ads. And the idea is that you pay less to get the traffic than you sell it off for. Um, the way that this commonly happens is that they use these kind of the, these worst, horrible, intrusive types of ads because essentially they trick people into clicking on them so you know you know the types when you go to like download a driver or something and there's a massive ad that says download but that's actually a fake thing and the yeah. real download ad yeah. is the tiny text link you know those kind of ads that um are getting high click through rates and try they're essentially you know driving higher revenue than it costs to get traffic to the site um so it's helping i think stamp those things out and just again any of what I would class the more manipulative and user experience breaking it. So I'm super happy about this. Um, my thought as well is this is probably like everything Google does in the grand strategy way, another way for them to make more revenue. Yeah. We've spoken about this before in terms of people being satisfied with the results of ads. If you could guarantee that if I click on a Google ad, I'm not going to land on a site with horrendous ads on. I'm probably going to like Google Ads more. <laughs> I mean, we talked about that a little while ago, right? With us as SEOs, I know you have PPC experience, but these days you're more of an SEO kind of guy and how we both like steer away from ads when we're searching for stuff. And I know plenty of other people do as well. I know people we've interviewed on the show before do a similar kind of thing as well. And that I think you brought up an interesting thought of we have experience from when ads were incredibly intrusive and full of spam and full of rubbish so we were kind of like learnt from our experience in the early days of the internet mark and i are in our 30s yes we know that we've learned to avoid that kind of stuff and not even trust ads even though all the stuff like this is has been finally tuning google ads for so long now that you need to have a decent landing page you need to have a decent destination you need to have non-spammy rubbish in your ads to even get featured at all at this point so actually a lot of ads aren't spammy and rubbish anymore but we still have that kind of lingering thing in our brain of like oh can't click the ad it might be spam but this is definitely kind of i think fine tuning and and kind of filtering and pruning out all the rubbish here as well to make sure you've got a really nice landing page the ad destinations aren't all cluttered and horrible and we're not getting things like countdowns and refreshing ads and all that kind of stuff this really hit home with me, literally, because I set up a uh, pie hole, a Raspberry Pi thing oh, that, yeah. that blocks ads, and I added, um, I added Google ads to it so I wouldn't see AdSense, the display ads on sites. As a side effect to that, because it blocks the domain, it 
also stops the Google search ads working. And then within two days, my wife came to me and was like, the ads aren't working on Google anymore. And I find them really helpful. I was like, no. I was she married to you and still clicking the ads? How is that well, yeah, so how is that not rubbed off? I found that I found that really interesting though. So so she does use the Google ads for like um for shopping basically. I think a lot she, of people and do. And she says yeah. that they're, they're useful, right? So you know, I've had to remove that again now. It's very <laughs> sadly, but it just it just Regretted brought it, teeth. It, it just brought it home though about how there is still a huge amounts of people that just are are using these ads because they've had a good a fairly consistent good experience with them and that's what i think this is doing yeah i think you're totally right this is kind of pushing it in that direction in general and we're gonna see better standards and i know uh luke like i said our ppc specialist here he was talking about how hopefully this just filters out people who have really rubbish landing pages which we see still a significant amount of i know luke has talked about it with you know doing research for his clients that he works with and things like that you still see really rubbish landing pages but the ad itself is really nicely designed and it has all this like extra bits and pieces but the actual place you're going to is rubbish so hopefully this kind of helps to trim that out and i wonder if like because it's a coalition it seems to be a bigger project and like you said it's backed up by some pretty impressive research so hopefully this will have kind of a wide-reaching significant impact and filter out a lot of the crap we see on ads. Well, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you for joining me, Mark. Lovely to have you back. I have a couple of guests coming up over the next few weeks, so you can probably take a few weeks off, go and relax, go on holiday somewhere, (laughs) sit on a beach, do an SEO with your laptop. But yes, I will be back next week and the week after that, and the week after that, I think, if the schedule works out, basically in the next three or four weeks, it will be me talking to PBC and SEO experts from across the world about a variety of different topics. Hopefully you enjoy those episodes. And uh, yeah, I'll be back next week. Thank you very much for listening and have a lovely week. <laughs>